You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. An update on Barracuda ESG exploitation. Camaro Dragon's current cyber espionage tools spread through infected USB drives. The Mirai botnet is spreading through new vectors. Midnight Blizzard is out and about. Ukraine is experiencing a wave of cyber attacks during its counteroffensive. Karen Warstel from VMware shares her experience with technical debt. Rick Howard speaks with CJ Moses, CISO of Amazon Web Services. And Anonymous Sudan turns out to be no more anonymous or Sudanese than your dear Uncle Louis. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Friday, June 23rd, 2023. Proofpoint has tweeted updates on what the firm's researchers are seeing in the wild concerning exploitation of CVE-2023-2868, the vulnerability recently found in Barracuda's email security gateway. As you might expect, it's an espionage caper. The threat group seen working against this particular vulnerability is UNC-4841. Proofpoint calls them an aggressive and highly skilled actor conducting targeted activity. The group is generally and credibly believed to be acting on behalf of the Chinese government. Its targets geographically have been the United States, Norway, Taiwan, and Poland. By sector, UNC 4841 has been most interested in academic institutions, defense establishments, and the U.S. federal government. Michael Raggi, staff threat research engineer at Proofpoint, emailed a high-level summary of the activity the researchers found, stating... Proofpoint has observed intermittent exploitation attempts by Chinese state-aligned threat actor UNC-4841 targeting CVE-2023-2668 from October 2022 through May 29, 2023. This vulnerability was being actively used in the wild by an APT actor as recently as three weeks ago. While the phishing campaigns involved conventional espionage operations— The threat actor also exhibited a sustained focus on scientific research, energy entities, and public health data, which demonstrates a more complex tasking than initially disclosed publicly. This zero-day vulnerability continues an increasing trend of vulnerable email gateway appliances being exploited via advanced exploits contained within phishing emails. Barracuda has issued both mitigations and patches. Another cluster of espionage activity attributable to China is the subject of research by Checkpoint. The firm's researchers have released a report focusing on a USB-propagated malware campaign that it attributes to the Chinese-based espionage group Camaro Dragon. The Checkpoint Research Incident Response Team discovered the malware while investigating an incident in a European hospital earlier this year. They wrote... The investigation showed that the malicious activity observed was likely not targeted, but was simply collateral damage from Camaro Dragon's self-propagating malware infections spreading via USB drives. 
Patient Zero, as Checkpoint calls the first victim, initially received the infection while attending a conference in China and connected a USB drive to a colleague's already infected computer. The malware hides all of the victim's files on the drive and shows a program that appears to merely display the files, but which launches a backdoor in the background. The tools involved in the infection, WhisperRider and HopperTick, seem to align with other tools used by Camaro Dragon, including TinyNote, a Go-based backdoor, and Horseshell, a malicious router firmware. Checkpoint explains, The ability to propagate autonomously and uncontrollably across multiple devices enhances this threat's reach and potential impact. This approach not only enables the infiltration of potentially isolated systems, but also grants and maintains access to a vast array of entities, even those that are not primarily targeted. The researchers have since noticed several newer variations of these backdoors, all seeming to originate in Southeast Asia. Checkpoint reports that Camaro Dragon uses its own FTP servers and third-party services like Google Drive to exfiltrate data. Propagation by touch, in this case touch by a USB drive, makes the virus metaphor an unusually apt one. Cover your cough and watch where you stick those dongles. A version of the Mirai botnet is exploiting vulnerabilities affecting D-Link, Aris, Zizel, TP-Link, Tenda, Netgear, and MediaTek devices, Leaping Computer reports. According to Palo Alto Networks Unit 42, the threat actors have the ability to gain complete control over the compromised devices, integrating those devices into the botnet. These devices are then used to execute additional attacks, including DDoS attacks. Akamai has observed Mirai botnet samples exploiting CVE-2023-26801, a command injection vulnerability affecting certain versions of LB-Link wireless routers. The researchers state, This can lead to various security risks, including unauthorized access, device compromise, and further exploitation within the network. Microsoft has released a new intelligence profile on a Russian foreign intelligence service threat actor it now calls Midnight Blizzard, formerly Nobelium. This threat actor targets government agencies, non-governmental organizations, and diplomatic personnel in an intelligence-gathering operation. Microsoft writes, They utilize diverse initial access methods ranging from stolen credentials to supply chain attacks— exploitation of on-premise environments to laterally move to the cloud, exploitation of service providers' trust chain to gain downstream customers, as well as ADFS malware known as FoggyWeb and MagicWeb. Midnight Blizzard is tracked by partner security companies as APT29, UNC2452, and Cozy Bear. Midnight Blizzard uses a cyber fire-and-maneuver technique moving between low-reputation IP addresses that are used for only a short period of time. This helps them obfuscate their operations. In response to this threat actor, Microsoft announced that it has added protections to Defender Antivirus, Defender for Endpoint, Defender for Cloud Apps, and Azure Active Directory. In full disclosure, we note that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. The Russian intelligence agents and their privateers, auxiliaries, and front groups have, of course, been active in the war against Ukraine. U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger told the FT Cyber Resilience Summit yesterday, 
We know Ukraine is currently experiencing a significant surge in cyber attacks in parallel to the kinetic aspects. The record reports that she specified neither the scope of the attacks nor the sectors that were receiving hostile attention. And finally, some of the Russian hacktivist auxiliaries are more deniable than others. There's a growing consensus that Anonymous Sudan, which represents itself as a hacktivist organization with Islamist sympathies operating in Sudan, is neither an anonymous affiliate nor Sudanese. Cyber News summarizes the evidence that points to the group's status as a Killnet affiliate, which means in turn that it's working for the Russian intelligence services. Much of the evidence leading to the conclusion that Anonymous Sudan is a Russian front group comes from research by Australian security firm CyberCX, and Anonymous Sudan wasn't happy about being outed. The group yesterday said it had conducted a DDoS attack against CyberCX's website, explaining, The reason for the attack, stop spreading rumors about us, and you must tell the truth and stop the investigations that we call the investigations of a dog. The dog insult is a nice but too obvious gesture toward the culture of the Sahel region of Africa, where dogs are proverbial dirty, low, snappish, and thieving, but really few will be deceived. There were no signs of disruption on CyberCX's website this morning, by the way. Straight up, Anonymous Sudan is Russian, and CyberCX, you can tell Anonymous Sudan that you're happy to be top dog in their book. Coming up after the break, Karen Warstel from VMware shares her experience with technical debt. Rick Howard speaks with CJ Moses, CISO of Amazon Web Services. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Karen Worstel is senior cybersecurity strategist at VMware, and she previously held CISO positions at both Microsoft and AT&T, where she led her teams through the challenging and sometimes daunting task of digital transformation. I spoke with Karen Worstel about the notion of technical debt. She shares her insights. So McKinsey and Company has come out recently with some articles around this topic, which I highly recommend. Um, And they basically say that it's the tax that on any development project or digital transformation that a company wants to undertake but must first address previously unaddressed um, uh, issues in the infrastructure or whatever the development platform, whatever those might be. So things that were left undone before uh, that now will be a barrier to getting something new completed. And that's how they kind of define it in a broad way. So it it could be anything relating to process and procedure, to be honest. Um, to application debt for things that are like ship it now and we'll fix it later, infrastructure, inventory. So there's a ton of different places where this, you know, can show up. But that's kind of how, in a very general high-level term, that's how McKinsey defines it. And they they say that it accounts for 40% of the uh, balance sheet in IT. Can we dig into that a little bit? How, how does it have such a, a large hit there on the balance sheet? Well, it depends on each organization. Obviously, that's not going to be true for every company. Um, but in my experience, when I led major transformation projects, there was a saying that we had, which is, is it done or is it done done? So there's a lot of things that get put in place. One of my favorite examples that people don't think about a lot, but we all feel every every month is patches. So um, whether it's a patch Tuesday patch, a security upgrade patch, or or some other sort of upgrade, or whether it is our our system is down and we have are working with the vendor on tier three support and they sent us a patch and we have to put that in the system in order to bring it back up again. And the question we would ask, my boss would ask is what does the patch do? Well, we don't know the vendor gave it to us. And so like, what's it going to affect? Well, we're not really sure. We just need to get the system back up again. Mm. That's an example of the kind of thinking and the kind of very pervasive practices that lead to an accumulation of technical debt. Another thing that um, is a great example is I was at the Sedona conference recently and they were reviewing a draft of some guidelines on incident response. And so as I was reading the draft, one of the things that came out was the very first thing that every organization must do in order to have a solid incident response plan is to have a data inventory. And I almost snorted my coffee, my morning coffee out my nose because I'm like, yeah, I get that. That's a really good idea. Who does that? Nobody. Nobody has a data inventory. We're lucky if people know where all their IT technical assets are. And that is a form of technical debt. 
And we've watched, we've watched it grow over the years as we've chased the next new thing. So uh, the, I, I think of it in terms of security as we've chased the next new thing, right? In terms of capability, functionality, business, things that keep our business competitive. We leave behind those things that are sort of the done-done. And, and in, in many cases, that has to do with security. And we figure that we'll come back to it later, and we never do. And that gap has grown over time. I just saw, just this week, I saw someone say that um, ransomware operators are technical debt collectors. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I might use that. Please. Um, please. <laughs> the, the, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, the reason that we, you know, 80% of ransomware, I saw a thing on, you know, in the industry rags recently, um, 80% of ransomware is due to misconfigurations. Misconfigurations are technical debt. So then your question was, what do we have to, what should we do about it? And my answer has evolved into, you have to tie it to a business imperative that people care about. So in McKinsey's article, their example is every new digital transformation project has to have a technical debt tax. That tax shows up as 20% has to be allocated to the retirement of the technical debt associated with this project. It's an outcome. It's an outcome that is a required outcome that's managed through the governance process with some teeth behind it so that we recognize the fact that it's not like IT's problem to go out there and try to scrape together money to go out and fix technical debt. It's the business's appetite for new capability that has to be, it has to be recognized that we got here in an honest way, but now we have to do something about it. It's sort of like finally going and cleaning your room. Like, Hmm. you know, it's like you finally, you can't just kind of like keep ignoring it or keep ignoring parts of it forever. You have to eventually go in there and fix it. So putting that tax on the project is one way of doing it, but it also has to have that top level oversight and governance that says, yes, we're going to track this. Yes, we're going to make you do it. (laughs) And and there's no sliding past it and trying to like get it, get out of jail card. You have to, you, you know, everybody has to understand that this is the reason why we have to do it. Now the companies that do, and we saw this in our own effort was um, at another, not at VMware, at another company. The upside of it is that there, the payback is in the millions and millions and millions of dollars. Hmm. And so you can go put that tax and clean up the technical debt and thinking that it's like a non-value added activity. But the truth of it is, is that it pays itself back in is faster time to market with new capability less time spent doing break fix, deploying the defect-free code. I've been saying this for years, but McKinsey, you know, McKinsey's article finally validates this. What about the pressure to ship? You know, our, our competitors, they're not worrying about that silly technical debt. They'll, they're going to beat us to market, and then it won't matter that our technical debt is, is uh, taken care of because we'll be out of business. Yeah, that's the AI conversation right now. Right. We can't, we can't dare slow down. What if we, if we slow down, somebody else will do it. 
some of that's probably fear. Some of it's probably reality. Uh, where I think this is going to start to shift is, is in the whole concept of duty of care. First of all, the obligation to be clear about this is the state of being of us, right? We need to know where we are. Like uh, Ray Dalio is really clear about, you, you know, you can't, oh, there's all kinds of great sayings out there. Uh, Ray Dalio has one, uh, Jesse Hitzler, he just basically says, know where, be where your feet are, right? That's about being present, but it's also about, like, be, I, I say, stand, you know, make a stand, but you better know where your feet are. We need to be brutally honest with ourselves so that we can be transparent and, and have integrity. And to, integrity is everything with others. I can't, if I am making representations to my executive management that everything is fine when it's not, that's on me. And the problem with that is it, that chain continues all the way to the board of directors. So nobody really knows where we are. And that means that we're not operating with our fiduciary obligations and, and accountability to the company or to our stakeholders. There's always going to be that drive that comes from that place that says, I have to win this. And the only way to win this is to cut corners. But I think more and more we're seeing that that's not really the path to winning. And, and I, I believe with all my heart that it's not the path to winning, ultimately. You might win in the short run, but you won't win in the long run. That's Karen Worstel from VMware. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. Continuing with our series of interviews, my CyberWire colleague Rick Howard gathered at the recent AWS Reinforce conference. Today, Rick speaks with C.J. Moses, Chief Information Security Officer of Amazon Web Services, sharing his take on resilience. The CyberWire is an Amazon Web Services media partner, and in June 2023, Jen Iben, the CyberWire's senior producer, and I traveled to the magic world of Disneyland in Anaheim, California, to attend their AWS Reinforced Conference and talk with senior leaders about the latest developments in securing the Amazon cloud. I got to sit down with CJ Moses, the Chief Information Security Officer at AWS, and we were discussing resilience as a cybersecurity first principle strategy. But he added a nuance to the definition of resilience that I hadn't considered before. He makes a distinction between availability and durability. You can look at resilience from different dimensions. Um, you know, obviously your your traditional availability type of, of thing, but then you also have a dur durability. And quite honestly, if you're prioritizing, you want to prioritize durability because if if I'm down for two minutes, but yet I still have your data and it's available when it comes back on, you're you're accepting that sometimes things happen, yeah. and we'll 
there's a whole process we go through to make sure it doesn't happen again. But the inverse is not the case. If we lose your data or somehow there's an issue from a durability perspective, then that's not a good day for either of us and you're really not happy with us. So um, a lot of, you know, there's prioritization placed on durability over resilience or over um, availability. But at the same time, both are exceptionally high bars. And we have planning for each of the different, and you have to do uh, from a resiliency and a, uh, uh, from that perspective, we have planning that we have to do with each of the teams, the different services, because the models for each are different. S3 being a highly durable model and a highly available model needs to be needs to be available and I'm not sure I, durable. I, I get the difference between durability and availability. Tell me, walk so, me through yeah, that again. Very, yeah. very specifically, yeah. availability is if you have a piece of data stored in S3, our, our simple storage ter- service, um, and you request access to it and it's available, you then get it. If, it's, if there's an availability issue, you don't get it. Durability is if you ask for that piece of data and I come back with a fault saying, I don't have it. It's no longer durable. I've, I no longer have the data, and therefore we have a problem. And can't get it. Yes. And the durability model, you know, S3 was created on a durability model of, uh, you know, of nine nines. It's like lots of nines. So it's essentially we'll lose one piece of data every gazillion years or something of that nature. I'm not good at math, so don't quote <laughs> me, me on that. Me, uh, wait, wait, let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's all in the documentation. Feel free to read the website. Um, I used to actually know all that stuff, but my brain's been filled with other things these days. Um, but um, so there is a huge difference between availability and durability. Uh, at the same time, uh, customers really demand and should be given both. And that's that's when you tie those things together. Resilience is, is a big part of that. Another big part of resilience, we, we, we look at, you know, um, the benefit of the cloud is that we are highly resilient, that we can stay up in face of all kinds of threats. Can we always do so? No. At large scale, things will fail and we have to plan. And we've, we've seen those things happen, you know, recent days included. Yeah. And, um, Although things, although things happen, one of the things you have to do is make sure, I know we're, we're far away from strategy, so we'll someday no, no. get back to that. Resiliency yeah. is a strategy, uh, okay, yeah, so yeah. I'm fine with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, so one of the things that you have to make sure is, is that you'll learn a lot more in failure than you ever will in success. And every time we have any kind of issue, we are very diligent in reviewing that to ensure that uh, we've, we've done the right things and are continuing to do the right things. You've likely heard of this before, correction of error, a COE, um, and a, you know, essentially a root cause analysis with, on top of that root cause analysis, what are the action items that you are definitively taking with named actors and, and due dates um, for doing those things, and we track them to make sure that they are done, such that, again, don't want to, you know, ball peen hammer your toe a second or your thumb, whatever, a second time. So uh, putting my customer hat on, right? Mm-hmm. Watching how Amazon handles a major outage, mm-hmm. I would like to have the same capability on my little startup, right? When yeah, yeah. when I ha- when I do something yeah. stupid and it breaks, I would like to have a push button that it just starts over there now, all right? And I and I can continue well, delivering my service, right? Well, the capability exists for you to be able to do so. Yeah, it's just a little bit hard right now. We it, work- so yeah. I, I I totally I, I totally get where you're going, and that's yeah, yeah. the thing is is that. Um, um, we're not there yet for all the things. Yeah, I get it. But 
15 and a half years ago when yeah. I started, <laughs> you have to uh, take into account, you know, I'll give you some history, some back, back in the day type of stuff. Oh, yeah. Feeling older by the second. <laughs> uh, when I started, um, AWS was five services, one region. The security model was the user ID and password mm -hmm. that you used to buy books with. Same one. Is there was right? no multi-accounts. There was no right? nothing. Your whole account, <laughs> you were running your business, although it might have been out of Starbucks off your laptop. That's what it was. So we've come a long way. We still have a ways to go. And some of the things that uh, essentially in the military we used to call it the football. Press the button. We had, you know, we had a whole new disaster recovery environment. Um, this is something that has been created. We do have lots of companies use very similar things. You know, uh, infrastructure as a code is a wonderful thing. Uh, the, the days of, you know, back in the day when I was at the FBI or actually when I was at OSI, we didn't call them advanced persistent threats because that didn't even exist yet, but that's what we were dealing, uh, dealing with. And if you had one of those get into a network that you somehow are responsible for, you had a, lot, a hard time getting them out. And in some cases, you had to shut everything down and start scratch, from scratch elsewhere. In the physical world, that's a nightmare. That's expensive. You're down for a long time. In the cloud, just like you just said, your startup. Flip the switch. Press, press, press a button, boom, you got another one, and yeah. it's maybe in another region elsewhere, or maybe that's the reason you're doing it is because of survivability or, as we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, resilience. Um, but the, uh, that model is very doable, and understanding that you, we don't have the service that says, okay, you've established your whole environment. We're just going to, well, we do have the, the tools to do it, but a yeah. service to do it on your behalf to cookie We've, cutter copy. Yeah, we, we looked at the tools. Yes, I would. Yeah, just make it a little bit easier. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. So we're at, we're at the end of this, CJ. What's the Twitter line for the, um, for the conference, right? What, if you, what's the takeaway that we should have for here? Any chance we get, we need to um, make security the path, the, the most secure methods, the path of least resistance. Humans by nature are lazy. I'm lazy. I'm lazy. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's just the nature of humans. And if you make the more secure path, the path of least resistance, um, we'll all be better off for it. That's a fantastic way to end this conversation. I appreciate it, CJ. That's some really good stuff. Thank you very much. No, absolutely. I appreciate it. I uh, look forward to trying to come back and uh, we can talk some more. Excellent, man. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. That's the CyberWire's own Rick Howard speaking with CJ Moses, CISO of Amazon Web Services. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Ian All from Permiso's P-Zero Labs. We're discussing unmasking Guiville, a financially motivated cloud threat actor. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you.